Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. In my prior activism, there was a Bible quote that used to come up. It was a passage from the Christian Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, 23-27, part of the Law of Moses. It reads, If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor, for the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. And that's the end of the passage. What always amazed me was that people would suggest this was a passage that would result in the execution of rape victims. And while this is true, the weirder part was how some religious people would excuse this passage. And I want to add that in my church, I was actually also taught this. The rebuttal says that if the woman wasn't screaming in a space where it's reasonable that people would have heard her scream, then she must have consented to the sex, so she's not a rape victim. Then the weirdest part of all to me was to hear people actually agree to argue this point. So someone critical of the passage would then dive into arguing about how a rape victim may be scared to scream because she's being threatened, for example. And yes, this is true. But why are we arguing about whether the sex was consensual or non-consensual? Does it really matter from the standpoint of the woman in the scenario? Are we actually going to start with an assumption that if a woman engages in consensual sex engaged or not, she should be executed by the state? Because I'm not really down with executing people for consensual sex. So when we really look at this situation, what we see is that we're actually dealing with someone who thinks consensual sex is grounds for execution, and that's problematic. In a prior episode, I mentioned the genocide against trans communities that's happening in the U.S. and the U.N. requirements for genocide that meet that definition. What's interesting is that when I first saw these claims and definitions put together, I did notice that the UN definition points out that these weapons and tactics to destroy populations are definitionally applied to national, ethnical, racial, or religious groups. I personally see ethnic as relating to culture, and I see marginalized demographics as subcultures within a dominant culture. So to me, the caveat of who genocide applies to isn't a problem. 
The reason I didn't get into these weeds is that I don't see it as relevant, for the same reason I don't see it as relevant if the woman in Deuteronomy consented to sex. The bigger issue that is deserving of all of the oxygen in the room is that we have religious people living in 2023 who believe executing people is okay if we can reasonably assume they consented to sex. And as well with the genocide, if you see the state taking steps to exterminate a population or forcing them into hiding or leaving, and your sticking point is whether or not you can understand that group as a subculture, then we fundamentally disagree on what's important in this world and this life. The person who would say, I'm not sure that's technically a genocide, is no better or useful to me than someone saying, I'm not actually sure the woman in the passage didn't consent. We're watching the state target a population for destruction, and someone wants to have time out to discuss definitions and the best labeling of state-sanctioned violence against our fellow citizens and residents. I mean, call it slaughter, call it violent oppression, call it whatever you want to call it that conveys the message that the state is taking steps that experts have informed them will lead to damage, distress, and even deaths of children and adults in this group. And it's not taking these steps as some sort of known cost, like running public streets results in some number of accidents, some of which we know will be fatal. It's literally targeting these people for harm and death. And meanwhile, we're all being asked to wait to see how it plays out while it's happening in front of our faces. For me, this is distressing. For the group targeted, it's lethal. Not lethal in the future, lethal in the here and now. Research into this shows that trans people who are supported have levels similar to the rest of the population when it comes to things like mental illness and self-harm. It's when they're assaulted and threatened and dehumanized that we start to see stress cracks in the population, and that should surprise nobody. I've talked about the eggshell skull rule in past episodes, the idea that when you do violence or harm to a population or a person, you don't get to create caveats after the fact to say it's not your fault. When we oppress a group of people, there will be random slices of people in that group. And I know that when I do the violence. There will be people with disabilities, mental health issues, physical concerns. Some may withstand it, but some may not. And the problem isn't that someone wasn't strong enough to well tolerate the violence that I shouldn't have been doing to them. The problem is the violence I have been doing to them. Oppression is a factor in destroying mental and physical health. We know this when we do it. And right now, we're doing it to a lot of people and trying to blame them for their reactions. But how would you react if the state were saying your kids should be taken from you? That you should be denied medical care that the AMA says you need in order to be healthy and well? That you should not have access to mental health support? That you're a threat to the public welfare simply for existing in a way that doesn't make you sick or dead? What if the state started pressuring institutions to provide them with the names of people like you, and if public officials with large megaphone platforms were perpetuating lies in order to stir up public anger and violence against you? What if your demographic was too small to push back on these narratives, as you watch even the media publishing information about you and getting it all wrong? You step out the door to do your errands into a world where you have to hide and blend in, not be identified as who you are in order to avoid potential violence because you just can't know which one of these people are sympathetic to you and which ones literally want you dead. And all you want to do is live your life as yourself. 
Our society should not be promoting this against any group of citizens or residents. And here we are again, back at speech. Who has it and why? Who doesn't and why not? There are patterns to this violence. I'm sure I don't see them all, but it isn't just used against the trans population. That's just where it's being most overtly used at the moment. But in our history, and even with other groups in the present, we have groups dealing with this type of state propaganda being used to wage a speech war by a state that owns the bully pulpit and uses its power to ensure platforms for some and to deny those platforms to others in ways that can sometimes be hidden. But it really only takes barely scratching the surface to understand what's happening. You may have heard of the marketplace of ideas, but do you know what that phrase means and where it came from? The marketplace of ideas is a rationale for freedom of expression based on an analogy to the economic concept of the free market. The marketplace of ideas holds that the truth will emerge from the competition of ideas in free, transparent public discourse and concludes that the ideas and ideologies will be culled according to their superiority or inferiority and widespread acceptance among the population. In other words, it's a model that treats ideas much like money in the free market economy. And when we look at where our free market economy has landed us, we see the 1%. People will argue that the market isn't actually free, and I agree, but when it was far less regulated, we had things like child labor and unsafe workplace conditions and zero days off and poverty wages and sexual harassment that was completely legal. We still have these things today, but in the U.S. at least, it's not codified, and it's technically illegal. So yes, we have a regulated market because true free market was tried and failed because it created a nightmare for the people exploited by it. And now, with regulation, we still have a dystopia where money has become concentrated in the hands of a few privileged people while the rest of the globe struggles with various states of artificially enforced deprivation. You'll have to decide for yourself if you think just over half a million unhoused people in a nation with 17 million vacant homes is what you'd call working for people. I don't call that working. And when you apply the same principles that don't work in the economic market to the idea market, you get the same failures. Concentrated speech for the haves and no platforms and speech deprivation for the have-nots who need this society to significantly change in order to be happy and healthy at some point. In the case against free speech, Moskowitz talks a little about the label marketplace of ideas. Who originated it and why? I know so many people who consider themselves left-leaning who use this idea. But do they understand what really they're promoting? This was another one of those things that I saw mainly being used by people who were promoting damaging models of speech speech that favored and empowered bigotry over marginalized and vulnerable populations. I often saw it on podcast debates. The problem I started to see is that you'd have one person up there defending a status quo, the dominant cultural view that we're all indoctrinated into, and had accepted as the way things are, foundational reality. The other side would be represented generally by someone living on the margins who wasn't accepted into the dominant cultural framework because they were born different, or as someone with a minoritized status. That is, their experience of being excluded from some or all positions of power gave them an experience that was already difficult for the rest of us to even relate to. 
So it would sound foreign to us at best and simply wrong at worst because it challenged foundational realities that we'd been taught to view as not just how things should be, but literally how things actually are in some immutable way. So this debate starts out one-sided with the party who is most threatened and mistreated by the status quo up there not only defending their life, but also having to get people that are wholly unfamiliar with their experiences within the society to understand what their existence is even like and how this same society treats them in very different ways. The other party simply has to sit there and repeat dominant culture talking points to win the crowd that's been primed since birth to see things exactly how that side is portraying them. A fantastic example of how frustrating this is to watch is the debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. If the marketplace of ideas worked in the way its proponents claim it does, no one would dare to put an ignorant bigot like Buckley on the same stage as Baldwin. And there would be no question after it concluded about who mopped the floor with whom. But because of dominant cultural bias, it takes someone as intelligent, well-traveled, and straight-up brilliant as Baldwin to be allowed on even the same stage with a racist like William F. Buckley. Moskowitz provides examples of how bias is built into everyday life. Quote, Google privileges well-established sources over unknown ones. That turns up more relevant sources a lot of the time. But for example, if you want to learn about the U.S. military's role in the creation of the Internet and you search D-A-R-P-A, you'll get many results that portray DARPA positively, and a few that only superficially cover the agency's controversies, before you get to something truly critical like Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley. If you search Chiquita Banana, you'll likely get many results about buying bananas, listings for job openings at Chiquita Brands, and videos of early banana commercials but very few in-depth explanations about how, with the help of the U.S. government, Chiquita's corporate predecessor, the United Fruit Company, helped to overthrow Latin American governments and killed thousands of people in order to produce its bananas. End quote. Moskowitz provides more examples and also academic analysis before finally saying, quote, Is this a free speech issue? It depends on how you define free speech, but I would argue it is, in the same way that Reed College's decision to teach only books written by dead white men is, or in the same way that black students at Evergreen wanting more diversity on their campus is. Without an analysis of power, race, and class, a free-for-all approach to information is a sure way to let the status quo maintain relevancy and power over the oppressed. Is it a problem that Google is biased? In a vacuum, no. Every human construction is biased. And if I knew how to code and had a few billion dollars, I could create an equally useful, in my opinion, search engine that would privilege results about Chiquita's Banana Republic over its cute antique advertisements featuring dancing bananas. The problem is, a social justice-based search engine would have no way of making as much money as Google. And therein lies the conundrum of free speech under capitalism. The speech that rises to the top is the speech that reinforces the system we live in. End quote. The dominant culture always wins. Moskowitz sat with an activist, Dylan Petrahilos. He's been involved in protests against white nationalists and white supremacists, 
And after Trump's election, he realized how destructive this would be to the United States, so he and many others planned to protest Inauguration Day, which they dubbed J-20. At planning meetings, an operative from Project Veritas showed up to try and get people to say that they were planning violent events, which no one had suggested or discussed. You might remember Project Veritas as the group that put out a hit piece on Planned Parenthood that was heavily edited to mislead the public. To quote again from Moskowitz, quote, The closest Petrohilos ever got to discussing violence was during a meeting when he said that there should be a family-friendly part of the protest with no window breaking, in addition to a more militant protest where people dressed in all black, often referred to as black bloc. Prosecutors would later try to use Petrohilos' insistence that no one break windows at the family-friendly side of the protest as evidence that he encouraged violence on the other side. End quote. All of this was in January 2017, and those words were all that was needed for the federal government to make the lives of everyone involved, including one person who was only there filming the event, a living hell for a full year and a half. I'm including a video link in comments called The Alt-Right Playbook, The Cost of Doing Business, by Innuendo Studios. It explains how we literally talk these issues to death as a method of maintaining the status quo. When our due process and redress of grievances drags so slowly that it isn't effective in changing anything, and people are dying and being denied necessary resources, when we live in a nation of a half million unhoused people and 17 million vacant homes, we really can't expect people to wait and languish in hopelessness. Angry response in that context is reasonable and should be expected and understood. We can't deny people justice and equity and continue killing them and expect them to be pacified by our continued calls to keep on waiting for another 200 years with no guarantees for things that they should never have been denied or subjected to in the first place. Moskowitz summed it up by saying, quote, What Petrohilos and others deemed an appropriate and deeply necessary protest was to others worth decades in prison. One of the J-20 protesters told Moskowitz, quote, we thought, let's be reasonable. The policing protocols of the Bush and Obama eras are not going to change overnight. And then that's exactly what happened, unquote. Bear in mind that this protest was not unusual by any means. It was not more violent or more well-attended or more anything. It was very run-of-the-mill protest by all metrics and accounts. But the state response was not run-of-the-mill. Hundreds of activists were held in a police kettle in the street for nine hours without food or use of bathrooms. Petrohilos had arrived at the protest, but been immediately confronted with a cloud of pepper spray and witnessing mass arrests. Even though he'd not been involved or able to participate because of this, he was still arrested in his home days later and told that he was going to be charged in connection with planning it and threatened with over 70 years in prison. Think about this as you watch the news of the sentencing of the people involved in conspiring to overthrow the government, assassinate our elected leaders, and violently attack our Capitol building after Trump lost the election. Some of them are serving no time, or a few months, or a couple years. Who draws the lines, and why? Most of the J-20 protesters decided to stand trial together and refused plea deals. Even with help from groups like the ACLU, the lawyers were inundated with what was being thrown at them from the government prosecutors. 
the protesters had to learn to understand the legal implications of everything that was happening to them, dedicating themselves to mounting a defense of what they knew was a standard protest situation. One of them, who had to put a job search on hold to work on her defense, indicated that she didn't see how she could now be hired anyway with all of this swirling around her and the government threatening her with what would amount to the rest of her life in prison. She was the one who discovered that the state prosecution was hinging on that heavily edited video provided by the disinformation outlet Project Veritas. They were also using footage from right-wing conspiracy websites provided by groups such as the Oath Keepers, many of whom are now being charged with seditious conspiracy for their role in the lethal January 6 insurrection. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In addition to working with groups like Oath Keepers and Project Veritas to trump up charges against these protesters, the state authorities were also helping these right-wing groups out. Rachel Scher of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department provided the names of 231 arrestees to a right-wing conspiracy website, which is very reminiscent of an article released just this month from the AP Wire, where it was reported that a police officer frequently provided Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio with internal information about law enforcement operations in the weeks before other members of his far-right extremist groups stormed the U.S. Capitol. This was according to messages shown at the trial of Tario and four of his associates. Lamont was an intelligence officer for the city's police department who was responsible for monitoring groups like the Proud Boys when they came to Washington for protests. Who draws the lines and why? Then a photojournalist, Alexi Wood, was dragged into this travesty. The logic prosecutors used was that his role could be to provide footage to promote and advertise the event for recruitment purposes. The horror of more people being recruited in the cause of justice and social equity. But regardless of your political perspective, this was someone there simply collecting footage of an event. But all of the protesters who had been arrested were concerned, as anyone would be who was being threatened with 75 years in prison in a legal battle against a powerful entity like the government. This would terrify most people, and I can't imagine the distress my life would become if I were in this situation, existing every day under this threat while trying to also somehow maintain a normal life. Another insidious tactic was that the prosecution told those arrested that they could only have plea deals if their partners, people they were in romantic relationships with, who were also charged, also agreed to the plea deal, thus making them responsible for risks imposed on someone they loved if they did not take the plea. The defense preparations dragged on, costing some thousands of dollars, job loss, travel to and from D.C., Trials were split up into small groups over the course of the next year, and the defense discovered that not only was the prosecution relying on conspiracy videos, but they had intentionally concealed 69 other audio and video recordings that could have potentially helped exonerate the defendants. This is a violation of the Brady Rule, which says that prosecutors must present all evidence, including exculpatory evidence, to the defense in a criminal trial. The prosecution was also admonished by the presiding judge 
when it was discovered that they were charging some defendants with setting a limousine on fire, vandalism that occurred after they were already being held in police custody that same day. The prosecution also attempted to use the fact that the defendants wore black clothing to protest as evidence of intent to riot. One of the protesters remarked at the violation of free expression the prosecution was pursuing in trying to jail people based on a clothing color. The judge seemed to agree this was ridiculous. As the trials proceeded, the juries began dismissing charges, and in many other cases, the state simply dropped all charges right before trial. In July 2018, a year and a half later, the state dropped all charges against the final 39 defendants. In the words of one protester, quote, We wanted to hammer them with evidence that they'd committed so much prosecutorial misconduct. We wanted to nail them to the wall. And then they dropped my case two days before the hearing was scheduled. After 18 months of me waiting, I had to go through 18 months of bullshit, and I never had my say in court. End quote. All charges were dropped for all of the defendants who agreed to stand trial together. One person who took the plea deal served time, four months. Moskowitz summed it up with this, quote, After a year and a half of stress of not knowing what their lives would look like, the damage was already done. They were free, but in some ways they'd been broken by the event. Several former J-20 defendants told me they believed the state had won for that reason. Their calculus was either they were going to actually win the trial and set a new precedent against protest or lose the trial but scare 200 activists off the streets of D.C. and possibly scare protesters across the country into thinking twice before heading down to any march. And that's the thing. Even when they lose, they still win. Because they shut it down. Not just this protest, but future protests. Many of the protesters who were subjected to this long-term state harassment, who expended time, stress, and money into defending their lives against an unethical state process, went on to say they aren't interested in risking this again. Some say they'll help with support, but they aren't sure they're going back into the streets again. And the photojournalist? At least while this book was being written, he was living out of a vehicle and thinking he might not want to continue being a photographer at all anymore. He was considering whether to even try to get his equipment back, which had been confiscated and held as evidence. Who draws the lines and why? The state can't have laws that infringe on free speech? Are we sure? Moskowitz dives into U.S. history to look at other movements subjected to similar harassment. They talk about a small-town teacher, Anne Hale, whose only infraction was having once been a member of the U.S. Communist Party. For this, her neighbors turned on her, and she became unemployable. She was even put on an FBI watch list simply for associating with people in poverty and people from the black community as a white woman. Her story would have been buried forever, except the Boston Globe filed requests for information to find out more about what happened to her. Historian Ellen Schrecker talked about that time in our history, the McCarthy era, noting that the Communist Party movement was about 82,000 strong at one time, but it only took imprisoning a few hundred and making 10,000 unemployed to effectively destroy the left in the United States. The government didn't have to prosecute all of them, just enough to scare the rest out of existence. It was the same tactic used with J-20. 
Moskowitz describes this same tactic again and again. With black civil rights movements and Native American protests, calls for simple equity and justice against state violence and community harm being met with even more state violence and community harm. In an older episode, I said it was as though we were putting people in a pot of boiling water and clamping down the lid, and then blaming them when the pot explodes. This cycle is not going to stop if the only answer allowed is for the people in the pot to suffer and die quietly. People have never done that. People never will do that. And the end of this, if there is one, will be society finally providing the justice and equity that so many are needlessly denied. There is no need for an unhoused family in a country with 17 million vacant homes. In a case that sounds all too familiar, the book describes an incident where a Native American woman is tackled by police during a raid. The police said she owned a gun and had brandished it at them. A gun had been discharged, and fortunately no one was hit, but it was later, during her trial, that the public learned the gun originally belonged to a paid FBI informant who had pretended to be an activist at the camp. The woman was sentenced to five years in prison for her role in Standing Rock. One of her lawyers, Molly Armour, told Moskowitz, quote, They're doing this all the time to every movement. They're in Black Lives Matter. They're everywhere. It just doesn't come out until there's something to reveal itself. We don't know the full extent at Standing Rock or anywhere, but she's not the only one. It's just that her source got exposed. In a report issued after the trial of the woman from Standing Rock, the Department of Homeland Security stated that she had purposefully shot at police, the same claim that had been discredited at her trial. In 1969, 14 police officers raided a two-story apartment complex and entered an apartment with nine people inside. Police shot and killed Fred Hampton and Mark Clark as they slept and injured four others. Police blamed the deaths on a firefight. However, the Chicago Sun-Times found that there had been no firefight and that the only two people killed had been sleeping. A federal investigation found one shot may have been fired by any of the nine occupants, whereas police had fired between 83 and 90 bullets. I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about Fred Hampton, one of the men who was mainly targeted that day. He was born in 1948 in Illinois. His parents came to Illinois out of Louisiana as part of the great migration of African Americans in the early 20th century out of the South. Both his parents worked, and Fred did well academically and athletically. His early goal was to be a professional baseball player. At an early age, he was impacted by injustice that he saw around him, and by 10 years old, he had already begun hosting weekend breakfasts for other children in his neighborhood, where he was cooking the meals himself. In some ways, this was a precursor for the Black Panthers' free breakfast program. By the time he was in high school, he was leading walkouts for racial equity because some forms of segregation were still in effect at that time. He called for more black teachers and administrators at the school. He graduated with honors and varsity letters. He received a Junior Achievement Award in 1966. He enrolled at a junior college close to where he lived and majored in pre-law. He planned to learn law so that he could use that expertise to defend people against police. As an adult in a leadership position with the Black Panthers, he participated in a community supervision program that surveilled local police. After turning 18, Hampton began diving deeper into social struggles of colonized nations. 
He became active in the NAACP and even served a youth leadership role as an organizer. He organized 500 youth members from a small community of only 27,000. He worked to establish more and better recreational facilities in the neighborhoods and to improve educational resources in nearby impoverished black communities. As all of this was going on for Hampton, he began to take note of the rise of the Black Panther Party. He joined and moved to downtown Chicago. In 1968, he was accused of stealing ice cream to give to kids in the street. Hampton disputed the validity of the charge, and writer Frank Wilderson believes it was part of an ongoing federal effort to discredit and disrupt the movement with invented charges of illegal activity. Hampton condemned sexism and considered it counter to the cause of justice and equity, and by 1970, about half or more of the party members were women. Hampton was also key to creating the non-aggression pact that brought powerful street gangs together, showing them that internal conflict only kept members in poverty. He envisioned an anti-racist, class-conscious, multiracial alliance, and he achieved that vision with the Rainbow Coalition. He was active in the Black Panthers' Chicago chapter, organizing rallies, participating in strikes, working at the BPP's local people's clinic, and teaching education classes. He also, as previously mentioned, launched a project to police the police and helped to provide free breakfast to local children. The Rainbow Coalition was most impressive as a multicultural unifying effort. Not only did it include Black Panther members, but also the Young Patriots, who represented white people living in poverty. The coalition also included the Young Lords, a group representing Puerto Ricans, Latinos, and colorized people. The coalition was also successful in bringing together many of the Chicago street gangs to end infighting and to work together towards social change. Hampton's goal was to oppose fascism, having said, nothing is more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. In 1967, Hampton was labeled as a radical threat by the FBI. They didn't just decide to surveil Hampton. They actually interjected themselves in order to derail the movement. Think about this for a minute. If he were doing anything illegal, the assumption is that they could surveil him and then later arrest him. And in some cases, such as withstanding rock as a recent example, the state can actually pass legislation that makes even more forms of expression illegal so that they can arrest you for breaking laws when you attempt to effectively protest. But why would the government interject itself into a movement that's done nothing to warrant an arrest and then actively attempt to covertly destroy it? And how is this conducive to free speech? Who is drawing the lines and why? What right does the government have to secretly enter a movement about political speech and change and try to secretly destroy it from the inside? If the group is breaking laws, arrest them. If they aren't, then leave them alone. What even is this covert disruption about and how on earth could this ever be justified? But the FBI created and disseminated disinformation among black progressive groups and placed counterintelligence operatives within these organizations. Again, I can understand even surveillance if there's a reason to be concerned about some group, but what role does a government disinformation campaign play in dealing with a dangerous group? If the group is dangerous, then why not disseminate honest information about the threat this group poses? Why is the government secretly trying to destroy political groups and organizations that are working toward change? Isn't that what free speech is supposed to represent? Isn't this sort of political speech and push for change exactly what's supposed to be protected? 
What is the government doing by working to bring down a cause that isn't doing anything illegal? Part of the FBI operation to destroy the party resulted in splits among the party leadership. The acronym for these efforts, and many others like them, is C-O-I-N-T-E-L-P-R-O, COINTELPRO. And using FBI documents as a source, Wikipedia explains the following. In 1969, the FBI special agent in charge in San Francisco wrote Hoover that the agent's investigation had found that, in this city at least, the Panthers were primarily feeding breakfast to children. Hoover responded with a memo implying that the agent's career prospects depended on his supplying evidence to support Hoover's view that the Black Panther Party was, quote, a violence-prone organization seeking to overthrow the government by revolutionary means, unquote. The FBI believed that Hampton's leadership and talent for communication made him a major threat among Black Panther leaders. It began keeping close tabs on his activities. Investigations have shown that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was determined to prevent the formation of a cohesive Black movement in the United States. Hoover believed the Panthers young patriots, young lords, and similar radical coalitions that Hampton forged in Chicago were a stepping stone to the rise of a revolution that could cause a radical change in the U.S. government. This ends the Wikipedia quote. Imagine that a group giving free breakfast to poor children is destroyed and its leadership murdered by authorities because they just might be effective when it comes to political change. Take a moment here and think about everything Hampton achieved. Then realize he was murdered by the state at 21 years of age, summarily executed without a trial, without charges, while he was asleep, apparently having been drugged, in bed. What could someone like Fred Hampton have accomplished had he not been executed at 21? Who can say? But that same thought that inspires me terrified our government. What could this man accomplish if he's allowed to live? In addition, the FBI used anonymous letters to cause rifts between black leadership and organizations. In repeated directives, Hoover demanded that COINTELPRO personnel investigate the Rainbow Coalition, quote, destroy what the BPP stands for, eradicate its serve-the-people programs, unquote. Documents secured by Senate investigators in the early 1970s revealed that the FBI actively encouraged violence between the Panthers and other radical groups. This provoked multiple murders in cities throughout the country. How do we know about COINTELPRO, though? I quoted attorney Molly Armour earlier who said, They're doing this all the time to every movement. They're in Black Lives Matter. They're everywhere. It just doesn't come out until there's something to reveal itself. We don't know the full extent at Standing Rock or anywhere, but she's not the only one. It's just that her source got exposed. COINTELPRO got exposed in 1971 when anti-war activists broke into an FBI field office in Pennsylvania and stole hundreds of files. The documents revealed FBI plans to infiltrate every black student union nationwide, as well as anti-war groups and communist and socialist groups. NBC filed a Freedom of Information Act request that finally explained what COINTELPRO, or counterintelligence program, was. It was a long-running operation to infiltrate leftist political groups since 1956, 
as the McCarthy era was ending. And we only know about this single operation because of an illegal break-in by activists. Imagine what we don't know. As noted earlier, this new program wasn't just about keeping a watch on groups acting in ways that are potentially illegal, keeping in mind that illegal is whatever that same state surveilling you says is illegal, just changing what is or is not illegal can make the difference between an illegal or a legal surveillance effort. So when you hear they were breaking the law, ask yourself even then who draws the line and why. Illegal is meaningless without context. As Moskowitz points out, free speech to many progressives once meant the freedom to change the world as it did to the founders of the ACLU. Now it seems to mean the freedom to respectfully disagree with the world as it rapidly heads toward totalitarianism and climate catastrophe. If our free speech is defined as speech on public property that does not interfere with traffic or police activity, that does not advocate for the overthrow of the government, that's tracked and watched by police and corporations like Google and Facebook, is it really free? And more important, given all those limiting factors, can it change anything? And if free speech doesn't change anything, then what's the point of it at all? A 2014 Princeton study found that people living in the U.S. who don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars have effectively zero influence over policy decisions. And this drives to the heart of what Moskowitz is saying. Not that free speech is bad, but that it simply does not mean much. It's an empty signifier that's been co-opted by every part of the political spectrum throughout American history. The Nazis who rallied in Charlottesville, shared memes of encouraging the murder of protesters via motor vehicle, and ultimately murdered Heather Heyer, rallied under the banner of free speech. Alt-right speakers like Milo Yiannopoulos get paid to speak on college campuses in the name of free speech, and their conservative backers further infiltrate college campuses with paid agitators, organizers, and professors who defend their actions with the claim of free speech. Those same conservatives successfully lobbied to dump a deluge of cash into American politics via Citizens United by arguing for their free speech. In the 1920s, leftists tried to create a classless society using the tactic of free speech, though their definition also critically included the right to agitation. And when protesters today are arrested for attempting to draw attention to fascism and racism, they defend themselves in court, often with the help of the ACLU, by invoking free speech. If all these things can fit under the umbrella of free speech, yet some are prosecuted and others defended, does free speech exist? Or does that umbrella obfuscate the state's support for fascist and white supremacist ideas and persecution of anything with the ability to change our world? One might argue that free speech, while it does not exist in pure form, is an ideal to aspire to. But if you believe that, you must reckon with the U.S. government's near-constant suppression of speech throughout our history, especially anti-racist and leftist speech beginning with the ratification of the First Amendment and continuing through the McCarthy era until today, when protesters are arrested for exercising their rights. If you do believe free speech is an inherently American value, then I think you must also believe that it is in crisis. 
What does free speech mean when the average voter has no control over their political destiny, when so many congressional districts have been so thoroughly gerrymandered that Democrats regularly win the popular vote at the state level but lose by wide margins in most recent elections? The entire concept of the U.S. Senate means that rural Americans' votes greatly outweigh those of urban residents. End quote. But COINTELPRO wasn't about pursuing lawbreakers. It wasn't about keeping a watch on groups that were potentially breaking laws. It was a literal war on dissent being posed by the U.S. government. And dissent was, apparently, effectively pushing for change in the form of a better life for people in poverty. COINTELPRO was a post-McCarthy program that had learned lessons from the past. Going forward, they had a new strategy, undermining politically active organizations from the inside. In a booklet to President Eisenhower, Hoover wrote that his aim was, quote, to counteract a resurgence of Communist Party influence in the United States. We have a program designed to intensify confusion and dissatisfaction among its members. According to Moskowitz, it's impossible to quantify the efficacy of this or really any COINTELPRO operation. But as historian Robert Justin Goldstein has noted, soon after COINTELPRO began going after the Communist Party, attending meetings, sowing discord and doubt, the party was, quote, virtually destroyed by factional infighting. End of the quote from Moskowitz's book. I can't realistically in one episode go through the persecution and harassment this program perpetuated. One agent writes to celebrate that the stress they were able to create around one Puerto Rican independence leader may have contributed to his heart attack. In another case, a young married pregnant actress who had donated to the Black Panthers was the target of a disinformation campaign claiming that the child she was carrying was the product of an affair with one of the Black Panther members. There was a media firestorm, and she subsequently attempted to take her own life. Her child was stillborn, potentially as a result of the attempt, and eventually she made a successful attempt. In 1964, the FBI sent a fake letter to Martin Luther King Jr. threatening to expose evidence that he'd had an affair if he didn't end his own life. They also actually sent this evidence to King's wife in an attempt to destroy their marriage. Both King and his wife realized that this was likely a federal plot and disregarded it, but what the hell? How on earth is this law enforcement? Where does this fall into the purview of keeping the nation safe? It doesn't. This is straight-up government harassment of citizens. And what it does is defend the status quo. When regular people like you and I talk about protecting the nation, we're thinking about avoiding another 9-11. But these people in power are protecting us from free meals for poor families and racial equity. This is what they find scary, because in some ways, they're completely correct. It would fundamentally result in an entirely different form of nation. It is an existential threat to the way the nation is now. But isn't that the point? Isn't that what we were all taught free speech was for, so that we could without government interference and restriction, not just call for, but effectively call for real changes to our system. Because that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a right to complain, but a lot of government pushback on speech and expression that could create change for the people who need change the most. 
those half a million unhoused people looking at those 17 million vacant houses deserve more than to just complain, more than to just be heard, more than a platform. They deserve and are owed some real honest-to-goodness change that improves their situation. Moskowitz points out, quote, While the free speech warriors of the 2010s defended the rights of conservatives to speak wherever and whenever they wanted, the House Judiciary Committee introduced the Unmasking Antifa Bill, which would, in effect, make it illegal to wear a mask in public. A bill was introduced in the Senate that would make it a felony to boycott Israel. A bill was introduced in West Virginia that would allow any law enforcement officer to deem any assembly illegal and arrest those present. Several states passed laws criminalizing protests that block road traffic with proposed prison sentences for offenders of up to one year. Missouri enacted a law that prohibits public employees from participating in strikes and picketing. Louisiana enacted a law that punishes anyone protesting around, quote, critical infrastructure, e.g. oil pipelines, with up to five years in prison. South Dakota passed a law that allows the governor to deem any protest on public land that might, quote, damage public land, unquote, or interfere with someone else's use of that land as illegal. The attorney general of Texas backed a school district that expelled an 18-year-old girl for not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, Georgia police used a law meant to limit the efficacy of the KKK to arrest dozens of Antifa protesters. A 43-year-old woman named Crystal Mason was sentenced to five years in prison for accidentally casting a ballot in the 2016 presidential election without realizing she was prohibited from doing so because she had a previous charge on her record for tax fraud. The FBI raided the house of and arrested pro-black activist Christopher Daniels under the suspicion that he was a black identity extremist, which legally places him in the same category as domestic terrorists. And an 18-year-old kid called Mapache, who was raised in the United States for nearly his entire life, attended a protest, was picked up by ICE, interrogated by the FBI, jailed for more than a month, deported, and told he would likely never be able to return. These events, combined, seemed to elicit less national press attention than the protest of Charles Murray at Middlebury College. End quote. So who draws the lines, and why? Our early U.S. history is one where those without property, women, and people of color were denied any basic rights, enslaved or even genocided. And many, such as folks in the LGBT plus community, were erased and closeted. As more rights were achieved by marginalized groups who began to call for greater equity, those still in power clearly decided that was not going to be allowed. No economic, social, or political change except within the system. The system they control that is the same system creating the problems of inequity. Not only do they have the capacity to make the laws to restrict the power and platforms, but even with that, they continue to not even play by their own rules around what is and is not allowed. They commit violence, but outlaw violent response. They demand strict adherence to law and order, but break the laws themselves. Planting evidence, lying, harassing, intimidating people into silence, and destroying lives. 
And it's still happening to this day, not just at Standing Rock. In 2018, the ACLU sued the city of Memphis, representing activists for Black Lives Matter. Documents exposed in Discovery revealed that these activists, despite having broken no laws, had been tracked by police, followed, and had their homes surveilled. Undercover agents were sent in to surveil their meetings. Memphis Police Department Sergeant Timothy Reynolds created a fake social media account, Bob Smith. He admitted to making connections with over 200 of the activists in order to try and find information about protests that, quote, could become unlawful, unquote. More than 50 people were put under surveillance after liking a post about a book written by an activist. This is not justified surveillance. This is surveillance looking for a justification. The city of Memphis lost the suit, but again, most of us don't have the means to sue a city, and the city knows this. As one person put it, it's a flex of power. It's a constant reminder of the reality that they can do whatever they want. Toward the end of the book, Moskowitz writes, quote, It's getting harder and harder to speak without risk without being surveilled by Google and Amazon and the local police and the federal government, it's less clear than ever who will defend you if you do get arrested. And as uncertain as it ever has been in this country, if the government will try to prosecute you. If participating at the J-20 protest is a prosecutable offense, but the vast majority of what occurred in Charlottesville is not, finding the line between acceptable speech and illegal action seems impossible. But there has never been speech without risk. Unionists who fought for revolution, or even just for fair wages, were targeted, arrested, killed. So were civil rights leaders and Black Panthers. Free speech is defined by the state to benefit the state. In the early 1900s, when speech meant more than standing on a street corner, but was inherently linked to the fight for workers' equality, the state and the progressives-turned-centrists who helped it watered down free speech so that it would operate within state-supported definitions. Speech, as we currently conceptualize it, still fits within those definitions. When the deportation of Mapache gets less press coverage than a protest over a talk by a white supremacist at a liberal arts college, we are reifying what counts as speech, who gets it and who doesn't. If the mainstream definition of free speech is increasingly milquetoast, Speech that does not disrupt, that does not lead to violence or to actions that break the law, even if the law is unjust, and increasingly agreed upon by progressives and conservatives alike, is that a definition worth defending? What does standing on a sidewalk and following police orders not to block traffic get you, besides a couple more data points about you and your face in your local police department's Amazon-run database? In an era when a few companies control most online expression and governments increasingly surveil what you do online, the lane you must stay in to speak without risk gets narrower and narrower, end quote. And I apologize for jumping right into another lengthy quote from Moskowitz, but they provide an explanation of something that is very interesting called a panopticon. Thirty miles off Cuba's mainland, on the Isle of Youth, lie five five five-story circular domed buildings that 60 years ago held thousands of Cuban prisoners. Each building's walls are lined with tiny cells, and in the center of the otherwise empty dome 
is a concrete tower where a guard would keep watch of each prisoner every day and night, a 360-degree view into each cell. These buildings are some of the last remaining in the world that were influenced by 18th-century English philosopher Jeremy Bentham. He called his idea the Panopticon, and he believed his design would be the future of architecture, not just for prisons, but for anywhere people needed to be watched. The idea behind the Panopticon was to surveil everyone in as economic a fashion as possible, with a central guard tower and open cells lining the walls, everyone could be watched by a centralized authority. But more ingenious was Bentham's idea that the tower should be darkened so that no one knew when they were being watched. If you lived in the Panopticon, it didn't matter when you were actually surveilled as long as you knew you could, at any point, be surveilled. That, in Bentham's view would engender constant self-discipline and regulation. So those in power don't even have to show force to keep people in line. If we all know that at any time we can be watched and we can be disciplined, we will enforce ourselves. While I was working on this episode, I kept coming across news items that reflected a lot of what Moskowitz was pointing out. I had planned to talk about a few, but they piled up so quickly and some require more time and attention than I can provide since I can see that I'm already at or past the hour once I get done editing. So I'm going to sign off, but hopefully in an upcoming episode I'll be talking about some more modern examples of the same government behavior and activity aimed at organized movements trying to affect political change. I'm also finding myself listening more to what people are saying, and more importantly, what they're not saying, what they're choosing to defend and what they're choosing to ignore, It's like waking up one day and finding that I can hear sounds on a new frequency. I love when I come across something like this book, something that challenges me to revisit my assumptions and question what I believe I knew. This is the space where growth happens, and I'm glad for all of you who are with me on this journey. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.